This is it, world. The last straw you hear. Like it ain't bad enough being the thing. This bug-eyed mudball gotta come along and rip off my name. Well, you're not gonna get away with it, slime puss. I've been the one and only thing for too long now to let a hunk of muck steal my thunder. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. I'm Paul Matthew Carr, your guide to the weird, the wacky, and the often wonderful of a 70s swamp-based monster comic. Today on the program, I'll be straying away from the main title a bit to discuss a Man-Thing side appearance in Marvel 2-in-1. It's a punch-em-up team-up with Ben Grimm's The Thing. It's thing-on-thing action. It's a thing. I'm going to be saying thing a lot in this episode. Thing. Now, at this point in the show, I talk about some kind of news or Man-Thing-related information. But, oddly enough, there's really nothing happening with Man-Thing right now. So, what I've decided to do is talk about something that's been on my mind for a little while. It's kind of an opinion piece, so I completely understand if you want to skip this bit and go straight to the comic book part. But, it's not going to be too controversial or anything. In fact, it may seem as if I'm being overly simplistic or a bit obvious. Uh, But here it is, my grand opinion. Just because you don't like something doesn't mean it's bad. I know, it doesn't seem like that's a bold statement or anything, but I think it's important. You see, the more I've become involved online in various communities and outlets, the more I notice the default setting for most criticism is, it sucked. And the default reasoning behind that conclusion is, I hated it. Now, this is nothing new. Uh, Ranting and raving about how something is awful has been around since... You know, the dawn of time. I mean, look at the Bible. Abel was critically acclaimed, which prompted Cain to proclaim, I disagree, in very strong ways, and look how that ended. Uh, (laughs) It's just that now it's much easier to distribute these negative opinions. And I get it. I mean, mean stuff gets a better click rate than praise does. But in my mind, there is nothing beneficial to just spouting disparaging opinions. And you know, you're entitled to your opinion. It's okay to hate stuff. I'm not saying you have to like everything, but when you're talking or writing about something, it's much more entertaining, in my mind, to be open to differing ideas and trying to find something deeper within that subject you're talking about. Not to mention, it's just a bad way to do criticism. You know, good criticism tries to analyze why something is. If something is bad, try to figure out why that thing is bad. There has to be a reason, and finding that reason, understanding it, is the real interesting part. Because ultimately, when you look deeper, you may find something that you might not have expected. I'll give an example of what I'm talking about, and I don't want to use someone else, although there's many to choose from. I'd rather use myself because, you know what, I'm guilty of this too. A little while back, I noticed that in comic book fandom, there were many people who enjoyed professional wrestling. I didn't get that. In my mind... Pro wrestling was just silly and fake, and I just didn't understand how people could, you know, get into that sort of thing. Now, the knee-jerk reaction would be to say that wrestling is stupid and anyone who likes it is stupid. But instead of doing that, I was curious. So I put out a question on Twitter and Facebook and such, and I asked why there is so much crossover with these two fandoms. And the answers I got were compelling, enlightening. Many people said that they enjoyed it because... It involved colorful, over-the-top characters engaged in an ongoing soap opera-like storyline with defined bad guys and good guys where right always triumphed in the end. You know, exactly the same reason I'm drawn to comic book superheroes. 
And that's something that didn't even enter my mind, but it made complete sense. And it gave me a completely different perspective on this subject. One person even talked about how it was something he shared with his father, and now that he shares with his own kids, you know, sort of a family tradition. And I found that you know kind of moving and sort of special. So with this new perspective in mind, I went online and I, I read some of the history of wrestling and I watched some old matches on YouTube. And it turns out I still don't like it, but that's okay because just because I don't like it doesn't mean it's bad. And I should not try to discourage someone else's enjoyment. So to swing this around to this show, I obviously have a love for these old comics and for this time period that they were written in. But that doesn't mean that I like everything about them. It would be very easy for me to trash what I find unappealing in these stories. But that's not productive. That's not entertaining. And it's not fun. I do my best, or at least I'm conscious of, being fair to the material. I won't shy away from what I find unappealing. However, I want to first and foremost emphasize the positive and great things that I find in the material. I hope that comes across in what I do. And if I ever get too negative, please... Call me out on it. All right. I'm off my soapbox. Uh, I'm going to take a quick break. And when I come back, I want to talk about things. Literally. The Fantastic Arse is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that Taste forgot the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree Skrull War. The arrival of Marvel Team-Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler and John Byrne. And of course, Marvel 2-in-1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. The Fantastic Cast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? So the story goes like this. Back in the 1950s, the comic book industry was stymied by the restrictions of the Comic Book Code Authority, a self-governing regulatory agency that was pretty draconian in what it allowed and did not allow to appear in comics. And so, because of that, the books that were published at the time were pretty light fare. Comedies, romances, simple Buck Rogers-type sci-fi stories, and westerns. You know, kid stuff, basically. So in the 1960s, a young whippersnapper upstart writer who went by the name Stan Lee decided at the tender age of 42 to quit the industry because of a lack of creative freedom. But before he did this, his wife Joan told him, Look, if you're going to quit anyway, you might as well just try to do something you'll be proud of. And if it fails, eh, you were going to leave anyway. So Lee enlisted the aid of an artist named Jack Kirby, and together they created The Fantastic Four, a book that ushered in the Marvel Age of Comics and changed the comic book industry forever. Yeah, so that's the story. And it's been told and retold and embellished many, many, many times over the years, mostly by Lee himself, so there's likely a bit of self-aggrandizement in there, but regardless, I tend to believe that on the whole, it's a true story. Whatever you believe, there is no doubt that The Fantastic Four was a huge hit, and it did in fact change how superhero comics were written 
and received. Lee and company would go on to create dozens more characters that would stand the test of time and continue to be relevant, so much so that at the time of this recording, in a little less than three weeks, with the release of the Avengers Infinity War, they will go on to make all the money in the world. All of it, including a large chunk of mine. But as I said, the Fantastic Four were popular at the time, and as with all things that are popular, you have to milk that cash cow for all it's worth. Their first foray into spinoffs was Johnny Storm, the Human Torch. He got his own set of stories in Strange Tales, an anthology book that was being published at the time. And it made sense. Spider-Man was popular, a teenage hero, so why not try the other teenage hero they had, Flying Solo, literally. Uh, The results were an interesting effort. If you'd like to know more about uh, these old Strange Tales, Human Torch stories, I recommend listening to early episodes of the Fantasticast to hear the hilarious pain that is caused by these stories. But fast forward to the end of the 60s and the early 70s, and by far the most popular character from the Fantastic Four was The Thing. Now, Ben Grimm was a gruff, cigar-chomping palooka from the Lower East Side. He was a pilot during the war, where he met Reed Richards, who convinced him to go on an experimental mission where he was bombarded by cosmic rays that transformed his body into a thick, rock-like hide. And so, Ben Grimm, the streetwise scrapper, became the lovable blue-eyed thing. And I'm not gonna do it his voice anymore, cause it hurts my larynx. Uh, so, the thing was given a showcase series in Marvel Feature, another anthology title, where the thing would team up with another hero to fight some big bad. Now, if you know anything about comics, you know that a team-up story usually consists of two characters meeting each other and, for some convoluted reason, have a misunderstanding which leads them to fight for a bit. Then they realize they're really friends and that they should work together to defeat the real bad guy who probably set up the convoluted reason for them to fight in the first place. This is a tried-and-true formula that has been around since the beginning of comics and continues to this very day. Well, this teaming up of the thing with a random popular character proved to be successful, so an ongoing series was ordered, which became Marvel 2-in-1. Marvel 2-in-1 ran for 100 issues and 7 annuals, which is pretty impressive for what is essentially a novelty book. And 2-in-1, for the most part, stuck to the fight for a bit, then become friends formula, but with an added little twist. It tended to have uh, little story arcs that ran between issues. Typically, a book like this would have a one-and-done story, but two-in-one would, not always, but for the most part, have a story that would span two, three, sometimes four issues, giving it a continuity that a team-up book typically didn't have. This had mixed results, since every issue, a new character was introduced and that character had to be brought up to speed with the ongoing plots, and then dismissed at the end for some reason. This occasionally stopped the story dead to do this, but overall, it was the likability of the thing that carried the series. He's just so darn lovable. And there, you know, and there was some good innovation by the various writers on the book. That made it interesting as well. But if I need to find a reason why this book was successful, it's because the thing is awesome. Now, today's story is the first issue of Marvel 2-in-1. And it was, it was written by Steve Gerber. So even though it's something quite different for Man-Thing, it doesn't stray too far from the overall characterization of Manny. I can't go into too much more detail without talking about the plot, so without further ado, Marvel 2-in-1, issue number one, 
Vengeance of the Molecule Man. Cover dated January 1974. It was written by Steve Gerber, penciled by Gil Kane, inked by Joe Sinnott, color by George Ruzos, lettered by Gene Izzo, edited by Roy Thomas. Ben Grimm, the thing, finds himself in Devil's Tongue, Arizona, at a gas station, where he reads a magazine feature about a swamp creature in Florida called the Man-Thing. The Thing becomes enraged that the Man-Thing stole his name, even though it's not the same thing, it's just a similar thing, whatever. The Thing immediately boards a bus to Florida to have it out with the Swamp Rat in person. The bus trip will take a day and a half, just long enough to get some much-needed backstory. It seems the Thing was transported to Arizona by the Master to battle the Hulk, and after that, he was walking home to New York. You know, like you do. He bumped into Iron Man, with whom he battled the Blood Brothers. And now, with a moment to reflect, he realizes that he may have been a bit oversensitive with the whole name thing. Not that that's going to stop him from fighting, mind you. Just a brief moment of clarity. Meanwhile, on another planet, how often do you get to say that? The Molecule Man lay dying. You see... The Watcher exiled him to a different space-time continuum than that of Earth, where time moves faster, and thus he aged more quickly so he'll die before he gets to have his revenge on his accursed foes, the Fantastic Four, who had discovered his lone weakness. Does that make sense? It better, because I'm not going to read it again. So, his son... Did I mention Molecule Man has a son? He does. His son sets off to avenge his father by first bombarding himself with atomic particles, grabbing his wand of power, and dressing in a... Let's go with interesting outfit. And then poofing on back to Earth to wreak revenge and become the ruler of the cosmos. It's nice to have goals. It turns out, the place Molecule Man Jr. lands when he returns to Earth is smack dab in the middle of the Everglades, where he immediately is confronted by the macabre Man-Thing. This scares the wand right out of his hand, and he begins to age dramatically. This has to do with the space-time differential between worlds, but of course I shouldn't have to tell you that. Molecule Man Jr. then regains his wand and realizes he must keep it in his possession at all times, or he will wither and die. Dismissing the Man-Thing as insignificant, he then trudges his way out of the swamp. At this exact moment, the Thing's bus is passing by, and after bullying the driver to stop, he proceeds to simply jump off the bridge, where he lands directly in front of Molecule Man Jr., who confronts the Thing with molecule manipulation, and to the Thing's surprise, out jumps the Man-Thing to help him. Molecule Man Jr. realizes he can't defeat both of these foes, so he does something rather ingenious. He turns them both human. He then attempts to teleport to New York, but he can't, because the nexus of all realities is keeping his wand impotent. It happens. In the meantime, the newly human Ben Grimm and Ted Salas attempt to find Ted's lab while exchanging banter, but eventually they simply stumble back into town, as does Molecule Man Jr., who finds, now that he's out of the swamp, his wand is working, and he proceeds to turn the town into a tableau of molecular madness. Night turns to day, the asphalt becomes a wave, and he even turns a man into a replica of Reed Richards so he can stretch him beyond his breaking point, and he dies a horrible death. Dang, that's dark. But in a reversal of an ingenious plan previously, Molecule Man Jr. turns Ben and Ted back into their respective monster forms so they can fight one another. The Thing, however, after punching Man-Thing's gut, realizes that he is only ooze and slime, and a sense of pity comes over the blue-eyed rock man. 
and as Molecule Man Jr. gloats, the Thing hurls a hunk of Man-Thing sludge at him, which knocks the wand from his hand. And as Molecule Man Jr. begins to age rapidly, he struggles and crawls, reaching for his wand to no avail. Oh sure, someone could have helped him, and they would have, had Molecule Man Jr. just one shred of decency. But no, the would-be ruler of the cosmos crumbles to dust just inches away from his power. In the aftermath, the Man-Thing sadly walks back into the swamp, while the Thing looks on. Without a sound, the Man-Thing turns, and at his ponderous, uneven gait begins his long trek back to the swamp that gave him life. Take a good look there, kid, Ben Grimm says to a passing child. There goes the only guy on Earth unluckier than me. So, that was wonderful. It was silly and weird and over-the-top, but it still managed to have a point and add a little pathos to boot. But let's start at the beginning. Now, as I said, these stories usually start with a convoluted reason to get the heroes to fight, and it does not get more convoluted than this. The thing being upset that his moniker was taken? That's just plain old silly. You'd think Ben Grimm would be above such things. And I'm saying thing a lot. I'll have to come up with an alternative word, so I'll work on it. Uh, But to be fair, this convolution uh, is somewhat explained in the obligatory backstory portion uh, by the fact that he's out of his element. Uh, He's been through a lot, and he's uh, a little oversensitive. I mean, it it doesn't stop him from going through with his plan, but it's given a bit more weight than simply, I'm bummed that someone took my name. Also, I love the comedy bit in the gas station with the, uh, the, the beleaguered clerk. Just being badgered by a petulant rock monster till he collapses into an oh, woe is me moment. (laughs) It's just so much fun. Um, And I love Gil Kane's art here, particularly the way he draws the thing. The rocks are sharp and craggly, and they stand out with heavy shading. And it's just great to see him sitting in an uncomfortable bus, uh, in his seat sort of hunched over and then later stretching out. I think that's my favorite way to see the thing, uh, doing normal stuff. When he's in a fedora or trying to be dainty when he eats, it's just that contrast of his of his bulky, unreal self in the real world. I just find it, I don't know, so appealing for some reason. Then we get the Molecule Man. Now, hmm, Molecule Man was an unremarkable villain in an early Fantastic Four story. The only remarkable thing about him is the fact that someone wanted to bring him back. And his costume? Holy cow, his costume. Okay, now, much can be said about the questionable aesthetic in the 90s. But boy, howdy, nothing can hold a candle to the really, really poor choices made in character design in the 1970s. Molecule Man, well, Molecule Man Jr. has, well, he calls it a fearsome garb, but goodness. it's it, He's got short shorts and go-go boots and a lightning bolt... Um, I don't know, it's a a breastplate, maybe? It's not so much a fearsome attire as that of a reject glam band or or someone on their way to Studio 54. I mean, He-Man characters would look at him and say, yeah, no, that's a little bit much, man. (laughs) And he has a magic wand. So it's really hard to take him seriously. I do like the fact that he is nullified by the Nexus. I mean, this is Gerber remembering that he has a powerful, otherworldly place that... One can't simply expect to do stuff in without consequences. So, you know, that's a nice touch for continuity. 
And I also love the fact that the thing instinctively knows where to stop the bus and exactly where to jump right into the middle of the action. It's convenient and good on him. He saves a lot of time searching the vast expanse of the Everglades so we can get right to the heart of the action. Now, in contrast to his thing, I'm not crazy about Gil Kane's man thing, which is a very funny phrase to say out loud, especially if you have the sense of humor of an eight-year-old, but... The way he draws Manny is sort of fuzzy and hairy, <laughs> and insert hairy man-thing joke here. But it's very different than Val Mayeric draws him, which is more slimy and murky. And I'm going to stop this part of the discussion before I burst out laughing. So then then we get back to, to Molecule Man. Okay, then we get back to Molecule Man Jr.'s really smart moment. He turns the things back to humans. That's actually quite brilliant. And... If he had just kept it that way, he might have won this battle. But let's face it, he's not the brightest villain these two have ever faced. Also, I like the way Ted Salas is transformed back fully dressed with shirt, shorts, belts, shoes, the whole shebang. But poor Ben just has his little blue shorts, and that's all. He got the short end of that stick, I think. Also, uh, seriously though, in a neat little twist, you know, these stories usually have their protagonists fight physically, uh, which they do later, but... During their trek through the swamp, they sort of verbally fight. This is Ted and and Ben Grimm, by the way. They sort of verbally fight, you know, they banter. And that, again, is a really nice touch to show their animosity towards one another in in a very different way. And they grow a bit closer as well. Back in town, when Molecule Man Jr. gets his wand working again, it's nighttime. Then a panel later, it's the middle of the day. I'll just chalk that up to his tableau of molecular madness. And his power up to this point has, I mean, it's interesting, but fairly useless. It's been destructive, but there hasn't been a real sense of danger. That is, until he turns that passerby into Reed Richards and then stretches him to death. Like I said in the synopsis, that's dark. I mean, he went from a goofy villain to a killer, and not just a killer, but a torturer. Um, That's quite a turn. And the whole story at this point takes a turn. Thing and Man-Thing are back in their original forms, and they do the obligatory punching, but that only lasts one page. Uh, Some of these team-ups have entire issues of punching, uh, but this ends abruptly, and in its place we get... Well, first of all, the Thing gets an understanding of what Man-Thing's situation really is, of what Ted Salas has lost. For as difficult as it's been for Ben Grimm, he is still himself. He still retains his faculties, his selfhood. He's still Ben Grimm. Ted Salas doesn't have that. Salas lost his humanity. But beyond that, he lost his being. He lost who he is. That's a horror. And more than just a body horror, it's a kind of living death. So Ben Grimm feels that. And suddenly, the idea of the name doesn't seem so important anymore. And then, of course, Molecule Man Jr. Dying a terrible death. Aging to dust in seconds as people stand around watching. And it's stated quite clearly that anyone could have helped him, but had no inclination to do so. And in a very telling epitaph from Gerber, he says, The legacy of any man with too much power and too little feeling. Dust. An interesting thought, don't you think? The story ends, as these stories often do, with Man-Thing walking off silently. But then Ben Grimm, the Thing, gives the Molecule Man's wand to a rather creepy little kid on the street. I mean, that can't be a good idea, right? wonder if anything happened with that. So yes, I really enjoyed this story. Uh, these two-in-ones are, in general, just so much fun to read. 
And yes, they can be silly and goofy and convoluted, but they're also the epitome of comic book goodness. And I find it very hard to say anything bad about them. They're just so much fun. And this one had a little poignancy at the end. So, you know, all the better. All right, I'm going to take another quick break. I'm going to plug my other show and I'll be back with some closing thoughts in just a moment. Hey, Brian. What's up, Paul? Do you like comic books? I do. I love the funny books. Do you like listening to people talk about comic books? Why, yes, Paul. I find that both entertaining and informative. Well, that's great, because there's a new podcast where each episode a famous run or story arc is discussed in detail in a fun and totally not rambling way. It's called The Collected Edition. The Collected Edition? That sounds intriguing. Who are the hosts? Well, that's the best part. It's us, Paul Matthew Carr and Brian Reese. What? Fantastic! I love us. We're awesome. Where can folks find this amazing podcast, Paul? (laughs) Well, I'm glad you asked. The Collected Edition can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, as well as online at CollectedEditionPodcast.com. That's great. I'm going there right now. Me too. Are we done? Yeah, I think that'll do. Okay, that's it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. I had a lot of fun doing this one. If nothing else, because I got to do a really bad accent, that's always a plus. Um, (laughs) Next time on the show, it's Monsters Unleashed. Uh, That's a magazine format uh, for a more adult audience, and it's very similar to to Savage Tales, where Man-Thing originated. These stories are different from the main line and not written by Gerber, so it's going to be different. It's going to be interesting. Don't know where it's going to head to, but we'll see how it shakes out. Again... Everyone, thank you, thank you, thank you for your continued support of the show. I really do love your feedback, so please keep it coming. And hit me up on Twitter, at Nexus of All. I've been enjoying the conversations I've been having there, and I want to keep that going. I admit, at one point, I was going to let this show go. I was just going to drop it. But the feedback I've gotten and the conversations I've had have really motivated me to continue doing this. And I'm so happy that I did, because... Because this comic, this character means so much to me, and, 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 and it's just a hell of a lot of fun to do it. So, again, one more time, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'll be back really soon, and until next time, bye. You've been listening to The Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. The Nexus of All Realities is a Daddy Elf production. Man-Thing and all related titles are copyright Marvel Comics, and no infringement is intended. The show can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And if you head on over and leave a review, I'd appreciate it, and I'll be your best friend. You can contact the show via email at nexus at daddyelk.com or online at nexusofallrealities.com and leave a comment on individual episodes. You can also connect with the show on Twitter, at nexusofall. The Nexus of All Realities is for entertainment purposes only. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained?